the book of Job. A little while ago, um, we heard chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. I would like for us this morning to look at chapter 42, verses 1 through 6 as well. Uh, We're fine? All right. If you're able this morning and present with us, would you stand with me for the, in honor of the reading of the Lord's word. This is Job 42. I just want to read the first six verses. So Job answered the Lord, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you and you will inform me. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there's a video um, that has been circulating. Um, Now it won't be there, but um, there it is. There's a video that's been circulating on YouTube in various places um, over the last couple of weeks. The video is of a paddleboarder um, just off the coast of Argentina who has a very close encounter with a highly curious southern right whale. Um, now, I'm not sure the size and the age of the whale in the video. Um, But that species of whale grows on average to 47 feet long and 51,000 pounds in weight. In the video, eventually, uh, the whale kind of go underneath and surface and is curious about the paddleboarder and then eventually puts up one of its big flippers and gently pushes the paddleboarder as though the whale is playing with it. Um, I have watched that video several times and I... I find it both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. (laughs) For there's something quite beautiful and awe-inspiring about the gentleness of this massive creature. However, I'm not sure how many of us this morning would trade places with this (laughs) paddleboarder because as beautiful it is as it is, there are all sorts of potential ways that even accidentally or inadvertently because of just the sheer power and size of this creature, something really, really, really bad could happen and go terribly and tragically wrong. Thanks. Thankfully, it didn't. And eventually, actually, a second whale swims into the picture. It's, it's quite fascinating. The last two Sundays, we have been thinking together about Job's suffering. We began a couple of weeks ago with chapters one and two. In those chapters, Job loses everything even though his faithfulness is beyond question. And so we thought about a couple of weeks ago how Job really sits there in the literature as an opportunity to say, in this, what scholars often call the deuterohistoric tradition, or even in a book like Proverbs that is beautiful but fairly simplistic, that seems to say, if we have a good king, then good things will happen. Or if we do good things, good things will happen. But if we have bad rulers, bad things happen. If we do bad things, bad things will come our way, which is generally true. But this book sits there to say there once was a man from the 
the land of Uts, whose name was Job, who did absolutely everything right and everything fell apart. So that we should be careful to judge our faithfulness in light of our circumstances. And then last week, we get these chapters, chapter 3 through 31, where there are three cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we thought last week, as we got to drop in just for one text where Job responds to one of his friends, we thought about how we should be careful then to not make hasty judgments on each other's lives. Because at times, um, in each other's lives, our circumstances may not actually be reflective of our faithfulness or even our wisdom. And that we probably at times should set aside our theologizing and our pontificating about God in order to sit down with Job in the heap of ashes and simply suffer and be present. And rather than speak a bunch of words about God, maybe join Job in lamenting and praying to God. In chapters 32 through 37, a text we don't get to really look at as the lectionary kind of flies over Job in this way. In chapters 32 through 37, another friend, one last person, Elihu, overhears this dialogue between Job and his friends and he enters in and he has about five chapters of things to say through chapter 37 as well. But the book of Job reaches its, its pinnacle in chapter 38 in the text that Ryan read for us. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. For in chapter 38, 37 chapters later, God finally shows up, shows up in a whirlwind and begins to address Job and his friends. And here's the moment. I mean, now perhaps, now that God has shown up, now perhaps Job will get the answers to the questions of suffering that he's been demanding for these 30 chapters. Or perhaps now Job will get the keys to the great cosmic question called theodicy, the question of why do bad things happen to good people or how can we justify a good God in the face of all this suffering? Perhaps now Job will get all those answers that he's been dying for. And the reality is, no. Instead, for four chapters, God gives to Job a kind of tour of the universe. And really, instead of getting answers, God just starts asking Job more questions. Um, there are two interesting, uh, there's a lot of really cool things in this beautiful poetry of God's creation, the complexity of it, but there's two aspects of it that I'd love to draw your attention to, and I think I have an image of it this morning as well. But there are two creatures mentioned in these chapters that I find really unique and fascinating. In chapters, chapter 40, the end of chapter 40, verses 15 through 24, God invites Job to look at what in the text is called the behemoth. And then in chapter 41, the whole chapter is the celebration of this creature, creature called the Leviathan. Um, this picture is um, kind of an illustration of it. It's God pointing down um, Job and Job's friends are getting to see both the behemoth, the top one, and the leviathan, the second one. Whenever I think about this picture, I, I heard uh, the great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann give a lecture on Job a few years ago in which he said, it's not my favorite book in the Old Testament. 
said, there's so much suffering. He goes, and then when you get to the end of it, God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. And he, instead he says, Job, can you do that? Can you do that? Can you do that? Have you seen my crocodile? How cool is that, right? <laughs> but these two creatures are interesting. Some people think that this is just poetic language to describe um, maybe the hippopotamus and the crocodile. But it's probably more likely that the, the language of behemoth and Leviathan are references to kind of mythical creatures in the ancient world that were composites of a whole bunch of creatures. So the behemoth is a land animal, probably some compilation in their imagination of the hippo and the rhinoceros and the elephant and massive land animals that, that are quite beautiful and majestic, but also quite large and scary and threatening. And that the Leviathan is probably some combination of crocodiles and whales and, and those creatures that we rarely get to see because they're so deep in the ocean, but every once in a while they wash up and we look at them and go, Ugh, I don't want to swim and encounter that thing. <laughs> that this poetry is celebrating these two amazing, massive creatures that are creatures of God, but they are also wild and untamed and actually quite dangerous. And God invites Job to look at them and, and think about them. That the universe, like humans themselves, have been created by God within boundaries that keep creation from utter chaos. So I don't know if I've talked about this before, but in Genesis 1, there's these two cool words, tohu and bohu. I may have mentioned it in the past. But it's as though God is saying, it's not as though the universe is tohu and bohu. For all this poetry celebrates that the waters have a place that God has given to them. The stars have a place that God has given to them. The behemoth and the, the leviathan are amazing, but they are, they are bounded within God's providence. There are boundaries to them, but within those boundaries, there's a great deal of freedom, a great deal of the unexpected, a great deal of the unknown. And so if I could go back to the video at the beginning, what is so interesting about that video is that massive creature that in a sense of freedom wants to know what this paddle border is about. And at one sense can be so beautiful, but also has a threat for this whole thing to go wrong, right? And that would... God seems to describe to Job is this universe that is not ultimately chaotic, but at the same time within the boundaries of freedom that God has given to us and given to all creation, there is a, a mystery, a complexity, an uncertainty, a danger, and even possibilities of destruction within it. Both destruction created by our own free will against one another, but also just the destruction that's possible because of these beautiful, massive forces that are part of God's creation. And so Job's response on the one hand is a kind of repentance. Not for having questioned, and that's really important. Job is never in trouble for hollering at God. Read the Psalms. God's fine with you being angry. And God has no problem with us asking some pretty direct questions to God. So Job is not repenting for having questioned, but he repents for assuming that he would ever fully be able to understand or comprehend it all. His response is rightly humility before God. 
standing before the majesty of the created universe. And this is a key thought. Standing before that, Job has been, and I'm going to come back to this word, Job has been decentered. In other words, 38 chapters is about Job and his suffering. And it's not that God ignores that, but God invites Job to an expansive view of the universe that, in a sense, decenters Job from the dialogue and the conversation. Hang on to that. But on the other hand, Job's response is a deep awareness of the presence as opposed to what he has so far experienced as the absence of God. An interesting rhetorical pattern emerges at the end of the book of Job. It is this contrast that Job makes between hearing and seeing. All the theologizing, if you will, of chapters 3 through 37 of Job was based on what Job and his friends had heard about God. They have long conversations, poetic conversations about all that they have heard about who God is. But now, and this is really critical I'd underline it in your Bible. Now Job, through his sufferings, no longer simply hears about God. But Job can say this, I have now seen God. I have now seen God. For Job has experienced something about the reality of God that did not increase his knowledge about God. He still has all sorts of unanswered questions. But somehow it has transformed his understanding of God and it has radically transformed his own character in the face of God. So this morning I I cheated a little bit. Job 38 is actually the Old Testament text for today. Job 42 is actually the Old Testament text for next week. But I put them together for a couple of reasons. One, because I couldn't figure out how to preach them separately. They're a nightmare. I just want to get that off my chest and help you appreciate me more. Um, But I also put them together because next week we're going to take a little break actually from the lectionary in this service and take a little break from Job. And we'll come back to Esther in a couple weeks. Or no, we come back to Ruth in a couple weeks. Never mind. Just show up in a couple weeks. Um, Be surprised. But next week, Pastor Carly is going to preach for us. And and she's going to preach out of chapter 7 of Revelation. She's going to do that for a couple of reasons. You're going to love her. She's an amazing communicator. But she's preaching out of Revelation 7 for a very pragmatic reason. She's working on her seminary degree right now, and she's in a class on Revelation, and she has to preach a sermon on Revelation to fulfill a requirement. (laughs) So we all get to be her professors next week. and, And no, I'm just kidding about that part. Um, I'm really excited. So we were talking about Revelation this week and looking forward to chapter 7 next week. But as I was thinking about my conversation with Carly about Revelation 7 and and about Job, I realized how deeply connected in some ways those two books are. That Job is a book about questions and suffering. In many ways, Revelation is also. That John, the revelator, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, very likely getting up in age, having seen probably at this point most of the apostles dying and persecuted. Looking at this church that has been birthed in the spirit and recognizing there's some good folks there and there's some crazy people there. 
There's a lot of new creation happening in that group, and there's a lot of old creation still rearing its ugly head. We have equipped saints, but man, they are living in an empire that is constantly trying to draw them into its life. Like, is there any hope for this church that God has started? And so in Revelation 2 and 3, we get these letters to the seven churches in Asia. But then in chapter 4 begins a vision for John. I think I have an image of this one. In chapter 4 of Revelation, John gets this vision of the heavenly throne room. And there, in the midst of all creation, worshiping the one who is seated on the throne, the exiled revelator gets to, to step in for just a moment. As I've said before, I, whenever I read Revelation chapter 4, I'm reminded of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's as though he gets to step through the wardrobe and see what's going on all around us. He gets to see the very heavenly throne room itself. And when he sees it, he sees that there is one who is seated on the throne, and the 24 elders, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles are gathered around the throne, but all, so is all of creation, worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. And the part that's so important about Revelation chapter 4 is it is also like Job's vision of God. It is a decentering vision. John, the revelator, who is so concerned about what is going on in the church, steps in and is now no longer the center of the conversation, but the one who is seated on the throne is at the center. By the way, one of the most important things about coming to worship each week, I believe, is this decentering aspect. I would love to have a chair that just sits right in the middle of the sanctuary to remind us when we come in that there is one who is seated on the center of the universe. There is one who is seated on the throne. And by the way, it ain't you. And it isn't me. And as deeply concerned as I am about what's going on in my life, God says, that's great. I love you and I'm concerned too, but you aren't the center. <laughs> Donald Miller in one of his books has this great line where he says, all of, us, all of us think of our lives as a kind of film and we're clearly the main character because we're in every scene. And Job reminds Job, there's a universe, Job, a story that's going on is so much bigger than just you and your part in it. That doesn't make your part unimportant. But it's much bigger than you. And John, I get how frustrated you are and how fearful you are about the future and where this is going. But let me remind you, you're not on the center of the throne. This isn't your story. This is God's story. It doesn't make your role unimportant or insignificant. But it just means it isn't your story. And so both books invite us to be a little bit decentered. And then in chapter 5, there's this scroll of history that is held in the hand of the one seated on the throne. And you, I've talked about it before. There's no one in the story that is able to open the seven seals and to unroll the scroll. The image is there that there is a kind of boundary to history, the scroll that it's written on. But at the same time, we don't know where it's going and we don't know who can control it. And certainly there's none of us either on hev in heaven or on earth or even under the earth, the text says, that can, can get it to go where it ought to go. And so John weeps because it all seems so out of control. But then the saint says, don't weep for there is one who is worthy who can unroll the scroll. Amen. And here's, now here's the important part. Remember, Job heard about God, but now he has seen him. The revelator hears that it is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, and he can open the 
seals and unroll the scroll. But then here it is. He looks and he sees not a lion, but a lamb who has been slaughtered, standing in resurrection victory. For ultimately, it is self-giving love that is at the center of this unrolling of history. And then in chapter 6, I got another image. When the scroll is open, these four figures emerge out of the scroll. I wish I had more time today to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But here's what I'm convinced these are. They're reminders that as history unrolls that it's not safe. And times often dangerous. It's likely that the white horse is a reminder to the first century of, of all of those folks at the margins of our lives, at the borders really of their life, who are always kind of a constant threat. The red horse is a, a reminder that even within our own life, even if you got all the borders protected, even within there's a, a kind of unsettledness in, in the lives of so many that oftentimes comes in the form of rebellion that we think we can control, but we can't. The black horse is probably the symbol of famine. If you aren't praying for it to rain right now, pray for it to rain. Because as we're often reminded, our lives are incredibly dependent on the rhythms of seasons working rightly. And as much control as we like to have, ultimately we are in trouble if deep famine comes. And I've been dying to preach on the green horse for the last 19 months, the, the plague horse. <laughs> a reminder, if, if there's anybody who should be reminded that we do not have control as people who've lived through the last 19 months. And at the end of that chapter, as we're reminded, oh man, there's a lot of unsettledness in our lives. The saints cry out, how long, oh God? How long? And I don't want to ruin Carly's sermon because you should come next week, but she's going to preach on chapter 7. And here's one more image. For one more time, the revelator hears, God hasn't given up. God is at work. There's going to be 144,000 redeemed, but then he looks and he sees a tribe that no one can count. Come back next week. It's going to be so good. This powerful image of hearing and seeing, hearing but now seeing. So as we get to the end of this brief little jaunt through Job, there are a couple of things that I, I think we can say. I think Job teaches us to rest not so much on what we often call the sovereign power of God, as much as we rest and learn to trust in the sovereign love of God. Let me explain the difference there. Sometimes when we think about God as sovereign power, we can think of God as being at the front end of history, writing it as it goes. And therefore, you and I are simply just kind of acting out the part that God has written for us. So then when circumstances come, we end up asking, God, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Like, how does this fit into the story? And then we say things that aren't really helpful to each other. Like, well, we know it's part of the story. <laughs> like, we know there's a plan in this. Because we tend to think God is writing out of power from the front end of the story. 
I don't know that this answers all the questions. In fact, I'm quite sure it doesn't. But an understanding of God's sovereign love sees God not so much as power on the front end, but love at the end, drawing all things to its glorious conclusions. And does that mean that everything that happens within the parameters of God happens with some divine intentionality? No, because if we could pass the mic around this morning, a bunch of us could talk about the really bad decisions we made in our life that God was going, don't do that. Don't do that. But we could also pass the mic around those of us who've lived with some of those decisions long enough to talk about the God who didn't let that have the last word, but who in God's sovereign love kept redeeming and bringing those broken pieces even somehow into the beauty and tapestry of God's great story. That is a a huge difference. And I believe that Job testifies to the God of sovereign love who keeps bringing and is not threatened by the freedom of creation, not even Leviathan or Behemoth but somehow able to bring the beauty of that freedom into God's glorious new creation. And the other thing I think we can say out of Job is that it's one thing to hear about God, to have head knowledge about God. It's another thing to allow the circumstances of our lives, and in particular, the difficult circumstances of our lives, to be opportunities for us to see God at work. Part of what I love so much about getting to be part of the church are some of those saints, some of you online, some of you in this room, whose lives have not been easy. And who have stories to tell about heartbreak and challenge and hurt and abuse and difficulty and pain. But having spent a lot of years in the church, those are the people I trust the most. Because <laughs> they are not people with kind of book knowledge, Sunday school answers about God, if you will, and that's not a hit on Sunday school, don't send me an email. God bless Sunday school. But I just have such a deep trust for those saints who have been through so many things, bear so many scars, and like Job say, oh yeah, I knew a lot about God, but I have seen God. I I know God, not just because of blessed circumstances, but I know God because God met me in the ash heap and was present with me. I I need to finish, and I'm going to spout some heresy here at the end, if that's okay. I don't really like the end of the book of Job. I didn't read it to you today, but you can read it on your own. I like the first part of verse 7 on when God decides he's had enough of Job's friends too and he kind of yells at Job's friends. That's a good part. But the book of Job ends with Job kind of getting everything back. Job's wealth is restored. His health is restored. In some ways, he gets 
gets more kids and he gets to live for like three or four generations and he gets to experience all his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And that's all good and fine. But between you and me, there's a number of scholars who actually think Job originally ended at verse six where Job says, and I repent in ashes. And a few generations later, a scribe frustrated with the way that Job ended was like, that is the worst ending ever and throws a happy ending on Job. I'm not saying that's true, but I feel that way about Job. And here's why. I'm fearful as we read the end of Job that we will read it this way. Job was faithful and God gave him everything back. See? So in the end, it is health and wealth. In the end, is if you just are tenacious enough, God will give you back. And my problem with that is, is this though, like new kids are replacement for the old kids? It's, it's not like jeans that have worn out and you just get new ones, right? Like that's kind of a terrible way. But if we read the end of Job as though if we just hang in there, God will restore all things, then we go right back to the very mechanistic view of God that brought about the writing of Job in the first place. For Job is an invitation not to serve God because great things will come out of it. It is an invitation to know the God who has created all things and desires to be in relationship with you and me, invite us to a vocation to participate in God's great story. And some of that's gonna have really cool parts and some of that's gonna have really painful parts. But we can say in the end of it, oh, this has not just been about hearing about God. This has been about seeing God and knowing God and trusting God. And the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away and blessed be the name of the Lord. For tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, for grace to trust Him. My favorite verse of this hymn is the last one. I'm so glad I've learned to trust Him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend. Listen to this line. And I know that Thou art with me.
God of sovereign love, O God, who Job meets at the end of his sufferings, O God, who is present in the pains and the hurts that are present in this room and in this world. Decenter us. Have mercy on us. Remind us every once in a while that you care deeply, deeply, deeply about the circumstances of our life, but history is not our story with you added in. History is your story in which we find a vocation a role, a calling. And strangely enough, even our hurts and our sufferings become part of that story, part of your redemptive glory in the world. We thank you for the world we have, the world that you've given to us, a world that is mysterious and beautiful, often gentle and overwhelming in its beauty and glory. But a world that is often threatening and dangerous. A world where you say to us, do not find your ultimate security there. And so teach us to trust you today. Again, I I pray for some in this room um, who are... um, who've never identified with Job more in their life than they do right now. Help us to not be theologizers, but lamenters with them. May we not just speak about you, but may we speak to you for them, intercede for them, cry for them, lament for them. But my prayer, God, today is not that you would just resolve their circumstances, for that would be great. But our ultimate prayer is that you would meet them and they would know you. Amen. And at the deepest part of their being, they would know that they are known by you and they would come to know you in all of your love, in all of your goodness. Amen. Teach us to trust you more. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray this. And God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand with us? Amen.